I want to thank you all for being back for our night of answering questions. And this is a format, if you'll remember, that was added to our Sunday nights at Sherwood. And this one comes in addition to nights of prayer and study and worship, rest, community, and vision. So a night of answering questions is pretty self-explanatory. We're answering questions. Okay? Now, if you will remember when I put up my first graphic last time, night of answering questions, I pointed out the fact that my graphic has something that the original one does not. It's these smiles on the people. So just remember, if you can see me, I can see you. <laughs> so if you would, let's hook each other up on this. A little smile goes a long way out here. So uh, anyway, on this particular night, we are answering questions that have been sent in. We kind of asked people if they would present questions, and you all were very gracious to do so. And these are questions that people have presented that are in relation to Scripture and doctrine and Christian living and culture and marriage and you name it. They all just kind of come together. So we have collected those questions, we categorize them, and over time we're just working through them piece by piece. Now, I am trying my best to go through maybe five to ten questions each time we get together and do one of these nights. And tonight, there's going to be five questions, and four of those are related to Scripture. Remember I said we might try to pull together a category. If we get into one particular topic, it might just be easy to kind of keep going and build out that topic. That's what we're doing a lot with this evening. Four of the five are addressing the subject of Scripture. Also, we are advertising the topics, generally speaking, in advance. Uh, those advertisements are coming out on our Friday email. If you have not been a part of that, you can sign up easily. Just go to the website for the church, SherwoodBaptist.net. Right on the homepage, there's a little block that has newsletter. Click on that, and you can sign up for that email. And it's also sent out on Friday so that you would know these are the topics being covered on that particular night. Also... Please remember, I am trying my best to answer these questions, but they are coming to you from one person's perspective, trying to be theologically sound, reasonable, and walking through it in a way that people understand. There's no question about it. Every single question that comes in, you could probably carry on and talk about and address and add more pieces to for multiple hours on end. One of the questions that I have tonight, there's literally entire books that are written on this. In fact, I've got multiples of those books up here right now. I'm trying to condense what is coming to me and what is being written about sometimes in books and try to do it in about a 10-minute format. So that means on these nights, you all are going to be getting the equivalent of maybe five mini messages or mini lessons. And the very thought of getting five mini messages or sermons in a night may be either very delightful for you or dreadful either way. But I'm just going to be honest, you're going to get about five of these coming at you tonight. So I am going to start with our first question. And just know... I am going to read the questions to you in the exact way that they came to me. So here's the first question that we tackled this evening. What happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament? We end with Nehemiah rebuilding the wall and scripture being recorded in Hebrews, and then we pick up in Greek with John the Baptist. Protestants call it the silent years, but there was clearly a lot going on geopolitically. What is important for Christians to know about those years? 
That's the question that came to me. Well, the final part of that is actually one that is very easy for me to answer, and that is what do Christians need to know? Uh, the good news is everything we need to know has already been supplied for us in the Word itself. Um, the Word of God is sufficient and complete. There is no part of Christian doctrine or belief that is hinging upon anything that is taking place in between those two Testaments, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Now, that does not mean that a basic knowledge of what's referred to as the silent years or the intertestamental period, that does not mean that that is not important. In fact, it's also very interesting in many respects. But there is not a key piece of theology that is hinging upon what takes place in between the Testaments. So what I'm about to do is give about a 10-minute overview of what is referred to as the intertestamental period. It is this period of time between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening or the beginning of the New Testament. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to share this 10 minutes or so, but do so from a gospel perspective. I feel like everything we can frame through the gospel, it's going to be better for us. So Old Testament provides key parts of the redemptive story of God that are also central pieces for the gospel message itself. I'm going to give you three very familiar statements because I have shared them with you probably at least 50 to 70 times since I've been here. Here's the three statements. Humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. There was nothing that we could do to reconcile the relationship on our own. Those three pieces that are central to the gospel message are also three pieces that find their grounding, their foundation, within three scenes are parts of the Old Testament. That is creation, the fall, as well as God's pursuit of humanity as displayed through the choosing, the establishment, and the providential guidance of the nation of Israel. God's constant refrain all the way through the Old Testament was this, turn from your sin and come to me, I have a plan for you. Turn from your sin and come to me, I have a plan for you. Over and over again, that is the basic word. That is the basic idea that is being shared throughout the Old Testament. But like many people today, God's people often chased after everything and everyone other than God himself. God protected and he provided for his people. He gave the law to guide them, kings to lead them, judges to govern them, conquering nations to humble them, hardship to discipline them, and at least 55 different prophets to warn them and call them back to himself. They went back and forth between what could be considered faithfulness and rebellion. But God continues to pursue humanity all the way through the Old Testament. The last prophet that we have mentioned in the Old Testament is a prophet by the name of Malachi. In Malachi's time, it just wasn't the people who were acting in sin and rebellion. It was also the priest who were acting in sin and rebellion. They were offering sacrifices that were diseased and lame and unclean. And finally, God says through Malachi the prophet in Malachi chapter 1 verse 10, Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, nor will I accept the offering from you. In other words, would somebody just come in and lock the doors and tell everybody to go home? The sacrifices are unacceptable. God's saying, I'm not pleased with you. 
from that pronouncement in the book of Malachi, God goes off the air for 400 years. 400 years of silence. 400 years that there are no prophets who were sent. There's no fire that's kindled on the mountains. There's no divine commands that are coming directly from him. For 400 years after the prophet Malachi, the people of God had to sit with the question, why is God so silent? And the second question is, when will God choose to speak? Now, if you have ever prayed about something fervently for a month, a year, five years, and it seems as though God is silent on the other side, you know exactly how hard it is to sit and wait in silence as you're waiting for God to speak. Could you imagine 400 years of silence from heaven? It's during these 400 years that the political, religious, and social atmosphere of Israel changed significantly. Prior to the intertestamental period, Alexander the Great had defeated Darius of Persia, bringing Greek rule and order into each part that he had conquered. He was a student of Aristotle. He was very versed and educated in Greek philosophy as well as in Greek politics. Alexander the Great required Greek culture to be a part of every one of the lands that he developed and conquered. As a result, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, becoming a translation referred to as the Septuagint. After Alexander died, Judea was ruled by a series of successors that culminated with King Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus not only refused to allow the Jewish people the freedom to worship, but he also overthrew the rightful priestly line and desecrated the temple, defiling it with unclean animals as well as a pagan altar. Eventually, the Jewish resistance was led by Judas Maccabees as well as the Hasmoneans, and they restored the rightful priest as well as they rescued the temple. Then around 63 BC, Israel was conquered again by the Romans, putting all of Judea under the control of the Caesars. So now you have Roman, you have Greek, and also you have Hebrew cultures that are all merging together. So hold that thought for just a moment. Let's flip our, our page over, and we're going to prep for where this is going in the next piece. During the Greek and Roman occupations, Two of the most important groups emerged on the scene that you now find mentioned throughout the New Testament. You'll find mentioned in the New Testament the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Have you ever wondered why you don't find them in the Old Testament? It's because those are two groups who came to power, who came into being during the intertestamental period. The Pharisees added to the law of Moses with the oral tradition, and eventually they came to the place that they considered the oral traditions to be on equal par with Scripture itself. Then you have the Sadducees. They are representing the aristocrats as well as those who are wealthy. They controlled the Sanhedrin or the ruling body of Judaism. They rejected all of the Old Testament scriptures except the part that was written by Moses, referred to as the Torah, and they were mere shadows of the Greeks because they greatly admired everything about Greek culture. So God always has a plan. He always has pieces that are in place. So what might seem chaotic in some ways was literally God setting up pieces for where the redemptive story of God was going to move. The events of the intertestamental period, they set 
the stage for Jesus' arrival. Both Jews as well as pagans were becoming dissatisfied with religion as a whole. In fact, the pagans were questioning the need and the necessity and the importance of polytheism. We also find that the Greeks were being drawn away from the mythologies that they had believed in, and they had more accessible access to Hebrew scriptures that were now being written in Greek as well as in Latin. The Jews were growing more and more despondent day by day. They had been conquered, they had been oppressed, as well as their religion was becoming polluted by outside influences. More and more, they were getting prepared with the notion, the only one who can save us is Messiah. Not only were the Jews ready for Messiah to come, but God was preparing the world for Messiah's message, which is the gospel. The Romans now built roads that allowed there to be access throughout the entire region, allowing the gospel to get from one area to the next. We find that there is now a common language, Koine Greek, that was something that was understood by more people, allowing the word of God and the gospel message to get out to others. You also find in this period of time that there was more freedom that was developed between countries, allowing, once again, the transmission of the gospel to move out from place to place. So now when the New Testament begins, there's another prophet who steps on the scene. This prophet is named John the Baptist. His message was, turn from your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he picked up exactly where the other prophets left off. That refrain of the Old Testament, turn from your sins, turn to me, I have a plan for your life. It's one that is picked up now by John the Baptist. So remember the storyline. It is humanity was created for relationship, sin separated that relationship. There's nothing that we could do to reconcile the relationship ourselves. So what is the message of John the Baptist? His is a message preaching repentance of sin and preparation for Messiah's arrival. Now, we've if you've been in church for a while, you understand he was preparing the way for Messiah. But I want you to think for just a moment about how the people would have received that as the Messiah who is coming. Think about it like this. The same God that they had sporadically followed for 3,500 years, the same God who was constantly calling them back to himself, the same God who they had offered lame and diseased sacrifices to, the same God who had been silent for 400 years, that's the same God who's now coming back in the flesh. And John the Baptist's job was get the people ready. Messiah is coming. When John saw Jesus at the Jordan River, remember his words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that one declaration, he tells the problem and the solution. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. Remember the storyline. Created for relationship. Sin separated the relationship. And now there is the arrival of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's now moving forward in this gospel message. So John baptizes Jesus. God the Father gives his approval. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And Jesus' first message is turn from your sin and turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you see the message has not changed? 
It's the same message that was delivered in the Old Testament, same message that was delivered by John the Baptist, same message is delivered by Jesus. It is the same message that we deliver to this very day. Turn from your sin and turn to God. God has a plan for you. The 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament was broken with the greatest news the world has ever heard, which is the gospel message. Created for a relationship with God. Sin separated the relationship. Nothing we could do to reconcile the relationship ourselves. Jesus did what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship, the opportunity to experience your created purpose to those who will turn from their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. Question number two. How do we know the Bible was canonized correctly? Can you expound on the process of canonization and how many of the books have surviving near original manuscripts today? I always hear this is how it was translated from English, uh, from the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, but where are those source documents that the original translators used to translate? So my easy answer would be, there's this book called How We Got Our Bible, and I would encourage you to read that. (laughs) And the reason I say that somewhat facetiously, somewhat seriously, is because literally there are books and books. There are entire classes in seminary that are just on how we got our Bible. So I don't want it to sound as though I'm glossing over things, but I'm kind of also walking a path of how much do you share and how much do you just refer people back to resources that can go much deeper into the topic than what I can go. But that being said, we're going to try our best to tackle it this evening. So lots of pieces are involved in this. We're going to pull it apart piece by piece. For people who might not be familiar with any part of this, I want to give the basics. That is, canonization, that term, it refers to the process of discovering which books of the Bible were considered authoritative and those that are from God. Uh, It's the process that led to the Bible that we have today, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Uh, The word canon itself applied to Scripture means an officially accepted list of of books. Now, a second part of the question is, how do we know that the Bible was canonized correctly? Uh, Another way of asking is, how do we know the right books made it in and the wrong books are kept out? Which, that's a legitimate question. That's a good one for us to know. So, let me begin by saying, we do not have the exact criteria that the early church used for canonization. There's not a document that has been somehow located that says these are the seven pieces we referred to. These are the 15 pieces that we used. Instead, there are certain guidelines for verification that are also mentioned in other early Christian writings that are used for verification of any of the writings of that time. And it's by piecing those together that we can find some guiding principles for this as well. So here are six guiding principles based on how pieces were verified throughout the early part of the first century, second century, third century that are considered to be those principles that help the canonization process. The first is, is it authoritative and prophetic? 
That is, was it written by man or was it written by God? Scripture has a definitive, thus saith the Lord, tone to it. In fact, all the way through Scripture, you find that it is being said that it is humans who are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they make statements that are unique, uh, statements like, and God said, or the word of the Lord came to me saying. It's very clear that they're saying, this is not me speaking, this is God speaking. So the question becomes, like, how did the person know that that was from God and not just from themselves or not just from culture or a popular opinion? So one of those pieces of criteria was, is it authoritative? Was it prophetic? Is there a clear, definitive, thus saith the Lord tone that comes through it? A second criteria on that is going to be, is it authentic? That is, the early church operated from a philosophy of, if in doubt, throw it out. In fact, you can see this in the way they treated early New Testament writers and people who came and said that they were apostles or prophets. And basically, unless there were miracles that accompanied their message and the messenger, they said, that person's not from God. They operated from, if in doubt, throw it out. There's also the question, is it dynamic? That is, did it come with a life-transforming power of God? When people read it, were they changed? Were they transformed? Or did, did you see movement of God's Spirit happening as a result of that writing? The next one here is, is it historically accurate? That is, when that particular book speaks of cities and currency and dates and reigns of kings and kingdoms, does it align with what we already know to be true about history from that time? So, for example, one of the differences between New Testament writings and, say, the Book of Mormon is there's a lot of references to civilizations and cities that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon that no one has ever, ever been able to find. But you can go back and you can look at these are the cities mentioned. These are the types of currency. These were the reigns of kings and kingdoms. And it is backed up by other historical writings of antiquity. That is an issue of historical accuracy. Another one here is, is it theologically accurate? Does the writing align with the rest of Scripture as it had already been revealed? Theologically accurate. Or is it presenting ideas that would be considered heretical. And I'm going to get into some of those in just a moment. And then there was number six, was it received and collected, read and used? And I'm going to show you in a moment how when it is the word of God coming through, it not only was circulated immediately through the churches, but they're looking at it and they're referencing it as the word of God. And yet there are all of these other writings that are off on the side that never got circulated. They were never being distributed. They, they were not considered to be um, the word of God divinely inspired in any way. So these types of principles are extremely important when it comes to understanding what should or should not be found within Scripture. The reason I say that is there were a lot of other writings, a lot of other documents from antiquity that were not included. One of the biggest sections of those that's found in the Catholic Bible is referred to as the Apocrypha. That is 14 additional books that are from the intertestamental period. There's a connection back on that time. 
Many times people are just wondering what happened during this period of time. So there's now this whole other collection of writings. So there's different books like First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus. Uh, there's First and Second Maccabees. There's the rest of Esther. There's all of these other documents that are considered to be in a Catholic Bible that were not included in the canon of Scripture that we have with 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament books. There is another group that we find in here. I might have the words on this next page. Here's a fun word for you. It's called the pseudepigrapha. This is another collection of writings. I, I know, just share that with friends. Just drop it at the water cooler this next week. They're going to love it. Okay, so it's a term that has two different pieces. Uh, the Greek word pseudo, it means false. And then epigraphene, it means to inscribe. It literally means to write falsely. That's what pseudepigrapha means. Now, this particular group of writings are considered to be spurious because they were written by unknown authors who attempted to gain readership by tacking the name of a well-known Christian or Old Testament writer onto their document. In other words, it's like trying to self-publish by putting somebody else's name on it. Okay, that's a real issue. Now, there are no major denominations who view any part of the pseudepigrapha as being divinely inspired, but there are smaller subsegments of Christian culture that take parts and sometimes even parts out of one individual book. So, for example, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church considers the book of Enoch, which is found in the pseudepigrapha, to be divinely inspired. Now, they reject the rest of the books, but they like the book of Enoch. So what you'll find is there's, there's smaller groups that are out there in Christian circles that will take pieces out of that. Now, the pseudepigraph as a whole was rejected for three primary reasons. One, it's written under false names and false pretense. So any falsehood naturally negates the claims of truthfulness. Second, it contains anachronisms and historical errors where once again, if something is being said to be written from God and yet it's historically inaccurate, it's very clear that's, that's not of God. And then the third part is they also contain outright heresy. So for example, the pseudepigraphal acts of John, Jesus is presented as a spirit who left no footprints when he walked, who could not be touched, and he did not die physically on the cross. Okay. So if that's what that book is teaching, there's a reason why that is not included within the rest of what you find within your New Testament. Also, the gospel according to Judas is a fascinating read. It is not divinely inspired, but it's a fascinating read. Here's the reason. Because Judas is the hero of the story. It's portrayed that only Judas was the one who followed the will of God because it was because of what he did that Jesus actually went to the cross to redeem humanity. Now, if you'll notice your other New Testament writers like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you wouldn't know who is writing the book because they're not saying, I'm the hero. They keep pointing back to Jesus. And yet, the gospel according to Judas, he's like, look at me. <laughs> you all can thank me. I was the one who ushered in the kingdom of God. There's a reason why it's not included in the canon of Scripture. So there is a stark contrast between the books that are found in your New Testament and those that are found within the pseudepigrapha as well as those in the apocrypha. New Testament letters 
were immediately accepted and circulated among the churches. So, for example, the church of Thessalonica received Paul's word as the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Peter recognized Paul's writings as inspired by God and equated them with, quote, the rest of the scriptures, 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16. Paul quoted the gospel of Luke and he called it scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. So in other words, immediately when it is God's word, it is circulating. People are recognizing this as divinely coming from God himself. So it is also extremely important for us to point out that church leadership did not decide on which books to include in the canon as much as they discovered the books that were divinely authoritative that God wanted to be a part of the canon. In other words, it wasn't that people sat there and said, eh, I don't like this one, but I like that one. Let's bring that one in. As much as they were looking to say, God, where do we see your handprint? What do we see is coming directly from you? They're discovering what God had designed to be in the canon of Scripture. So what you find is various church councils and synods gave formal acknowledgement to what the church had organically already come to the conclusion of. The Council of Hippo, A.D. 393, they stated that the 27 books of the New Testament were considered to be the canon. The Synod of Carthage in A.D. 397 stated that only canonical books should be read in churches, and then they listed the 27 books of the New Testament. Then there's the Council of Carthage in A.D. 419. It reaffirmed the existing 27 books that are found within our New Testament. The final part of the question is how many manuscripts or surviving copies do we have in existence today? Let me say, we have no original manuscripts. We have no signed copies. There's not like Paul's letter to the Ephesians signed by Paul at the very end. However, there are close to 25,000 fragments and pieces of manuscripts for the New Testament alone. There is more evidence for the historical accuracy of the New Testament than any literature of antiquity. What you would find is textual analysis begins with historical investigation. They begin with the latest documents and they begin to work their way backwards. The data is evaluated against the other sources. The claims are analyzed much as they would within a legal case, checking for consistency, looking for credible testimony with cross-examination. So the New Testament was written in the first century AD, and we find that the earliest textual evidence we have is the early part of the second century. That is incredible when you look at the other books of antiquity. For example, Caesar's Gallic Wars was written in the first century BC. There's only 10 manuscripts that remain, and the earliest textual evidence was copied a thousand years after the event. So you have New Testament, our earliest pieces come within a hundred years of the original time. The next closest is a thousand years in between with five manuscripts. Aristotle's Poetics was written in the fourth century BC. There's five manuscripts in existence. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied 1400 years after the original. So after millions of man hours have been spent 
cross-checking and examining these passages, there is less than 1% of New Testament words that have ever been brought into question. And even in those 1%, there is no part of Christian teaching or theology that is hinging upon anything that is found as far as a difference between the different manuscripts. We accept by faith that the canon is correct. But listen, we also accept this not with blind faith. In every area of life, Christians are not asking the question, what can we prove? We ask the question, where does the evidence lead? And there is ample evidence that points back to the notion that the canonization process revealed God's authoritative word and preserved his word for us today. Here's our next question. This one seems smaller. And by the way, they do get smaller the further I go here. So here's the question. The earliest manuscripts do not contain John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Should this passage be considered inspired scripture? Well, fitting right into the flow of what we're already talking about, seems like a good time to bring this up, because this is a question about the authenticity of a piece that was accepted into the canon of Scripture. And the question comes back to, did the Apostle John write that particular portion of Scripture, or was it added in at a later date by somebody who felt like it was a good historical story that needed to be a part of the Scripture? Well, this is a question that takes us back to which group of manuscripts the New Testament was translated from. Our Greek manuscripts fall into two main families. That is the Byzantine family, focused primarily within Eastern Europe, and then the Alexandrian family of manuscripts, primarily in North Africa. For the vast majority of church history, the best as well as the most numerous manuscripts, upwards of 90%, of those manuscripts are of the Byzantine family. But in 1844, ancient manuscripts were discovered at the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. When these were examined, the manuscripts were now considered to be the oldest and therefore the most reliable of the manuscripts that we have. And the reasoning behind that is one would expect the earlier the manuscript to be, the more reliable because it's closer to the actual date of when the events occurred. So think of it the same way there was the old, uh, I guess, analogy, the old example that would happen in school classrooms when they talked about like the telephone game. You would say one thing to one person, that person would tell it to someone else, that person would tell it to somebody else. It would work its way around the classroom, and by the time it came to the last person, it had absolutely no bearing on what was originally said. It, It always changed. The idea is the closer you get to the source, the more reliable and the more accurate it's going to be. So the Byzantine group of manuscripts includes John 7, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. The Alexandrian group of manuscripts do not include it. Now, some of your modern translations today, such as NIV, ESV, They will include the section, but they put brackets around it to show that that was not a part of the original group of manuscripts that they were working from, but it is also a section that is found in other translations, such as the King James or New King James. So the question now becomes, which group of manuscripts do you consider to be the most accurate? 
Do you go with the majority or do you go with the oldest? You can make a pretty solid argument in both cases. The issue as to which group you translate from is going to be whether or not you would consider that text to be divinely inspired. Now, here's the thing. On both sides, those who would hold to the Byzantine and those who would hold to the Alexandrian uh, group of manuscripts, both sides, they would say, we believe the event, which the event was the woman caught in the act of adultery. That's the section that's being addressed. Both groups would say, we believe that to be a historical event that happened. We believe it to be true. There's nothing in that story that is outside of theology or nothing that will go countercultural to how Jesus revealed himself through the rest of the Gospels. So both groups would say, there's a good chance that story 100% occurred. One group had it in the text, another group did not. The question comes back to which do you consider to be the most reliable? All right, in case you're wondering, King James, as well as New King James versions of the Bible, are based on the Byzantine set of manuscripts. Your other modern translations come from the Alexandrian group of manuscripts. That would be the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard, New Living, NASB, NIV, and many others. Regardless of which translation of the Bible you use, the texts are remarkably similar, and there is no parts of doctrine or Christian teaching that are ever considered to be in question in that. So, we will now go to the next one. The question is, for folks who want to dig deeper into Bible study on their own, what resources do you recommend? Well, on a very basic level, I would say it is good for everybody to have a solid study Bible. And a solid study Bible is going to be one that is going to provide contextual information about the author, about the audience, about the setting, about the genre, about themes that are happening, as well as other specific notes that would be found down in the margin. So a great study Bible would be a wonderful piece. Now, if I were to be stranded on a desert island and only had one study Bible with me, um, I would like it to be a life application study Bible that came with a cell phone, quite honestly. That would be helpful. So the reason I would say that that's a good one to work with is because that particular study Bible provides all of those pieces and then a whole lot more as well. It's also one that is uh, found in King James, New Living, NIV, New King James, NASB. So chances are the translation that you are reading from, that is a study Bible that would have information for you. So a good study Bible is also one that's going to give you instructions, give you notes, basic outline, and one that would also have a solid concordance that's going to be in the back to help you look up specific words. Now, beyond a good study Bible, if you prefer to study with physical books, it might be helpful for you to have a complete concordance of the Bible, and that is going to give you an opportunity to look up every word that is found in Scripture. Uh, Strong's Concordance is considered to be kind of the, the mainstay in that. Um, so it's going to be a concordance that allows you to look up the word faith. And every time faith is mentioned in the Bible, you can go through and see how it's mentioned. Also, I would say having a good Bible dictionary is another good resource to have that helps you understand certain words, cultural ideas, and some historical pieces along the way. And then finally, I would say if you have the opportunity, it might be nice to have a time-tested set of commentaries that covers the entire Bible. Now, 
There's a couple of those I would recommend. Uh, probably the one that has been considered to be a mainstay through the Bible would be J. Vernon McGee. It's been out for a long time. They got little tiny copies of it. You could also get it in, I think, a five-volume, much larger set. Also, the B-Series by Warren Wiersbe is another fantastic commentary set that goes through Scripture. And then also, I would say Matthew Henry. That was kind of the mainstay. It's kind of funny because in seminary, when you graduate from seminary, you get like nine copies of Matthew Henry commentary because everybody feels like that's the best one to give you, so you just keep getting a lot of these. So anyway, Matthew Henry's been around for a long time. Now let me say about this. If you have this much in study resources, you're going to be doing better than probably 95% in Christianity. They will not have all of those pieces. But also know if you have none of these but the Word of God, you still have what you need. Don't, don't feel like you got capped because, you know, finances held you back from getting the other pieces. If you have the Word, you have all you need. Now, I would also go as far as to say if you prefer to study digitally, there are two resources I would recommend. Logos would be one and Esword would be the other. Logos is going to cost you, but it is far superior in its capabilities. Esword is free, but it is limited by what is found in open domain. Now, both of those can be obtained online. The final thing I would say about any of these resources is it all depends on how much money you want to spend. You can easily drop several thousand dollars on one set of commentaries. It's easy to do. Might not be enjoyable to do, but it's easy to do. Or you can spend 50 bucks on a set of commentaries. And I can just say the old adage is true. You get what you pay for. Now, one of the best things is to get a set of commentaries from a family member or a friend who says, I have already studied these from cover to cover, and I'd like to gift them to you. That's best case scenario there. So anyway, it's a great way for you to go through and to build a library is by acquiring some of these different resources. Also, if you're studying a particular book of the Bible, sometimes people ask me, like, hey, I'm studying the book of Philippians. Is there a particular commentary you would recommend? I can recommend specific commentaries based on books. There are some that is just specific to that book. So when I'm going verse by verse, say through the book of James or through the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, I will often go through and purchase additional single commentaries for that book to put in addition to the commentary sets that I already have. That allows me to be able to go through sometimes 15 upwards of 25 different commentaries on one particular, uh, I guess, book within the Bible. Also, uh, I would say if you are wondering about the list of commentaries that I use, I figure I will give those to you. I will mention them to you. And then if you want to write all of them down, go back and watch the video right afterwards, okay? So here's the commentaries that I use regularly. And let me say, y'all listening? Are y'all listening? Thank you. Let me say, all because it's in my commentary list does not mean I agree with everything that is said within the commentary. Do you all hear that? Okay, because when I give you some of these, you might be like, oh, I can't believe that. Okay, and, and here's why this is important for us to go through and to mention. There are some particular sets of commentaries 
that are incredible for one piece that I would not give to another believer in another area. For example, some are sensational when helping you understand the cultural setting of first century Judaism. But that same exact commentator will downplay the miracles of Christ. All right, my, my thing is I need to be wise in the word when I'm studying, and there's parts I can glean, but there's parts that I'm going to reject. So here's the list of commentaries that I will regularly use. John MacArthur's New Testament commentary series, the Expositor's Bible commentary, Word Bible commentary, New American commentary, Pulpit Bible commentary, Wearsby's B-series, Through the Bible, J. Vernon McGee, Jameson Fawcett Brown, Holman Concise Bible Commentary, The Teacher's Bible Commentary, Tyndall New Testament Commentary, New International Greek Testament Commentary. Those are some of the ones that I will use regularly. And then depending upon what book I'm studying, there will be other specific ones I bring into that mix. Now, let me also say, it's good to have a mix of old commentaries and some that might be new. I would not encourage you to get nothing but new. There's a reason why the old ones are still around. They're time-tested, okay? Get, get old, get some that are new. Here's our final question. Yep, yeah, apparently. Is that one more? Yeah, this is my final question. Okay, so this one comes probably from a teenager. And I say that because of the the way the actual question was worded. So again, I am reading you the question the exact same way that it came to me. How can I get my parents to come to church? They think it is okay to stay at home and not come to church at all anymore. They use the excuse that where there are two or more in fellowship, God can be, which is true. But large crowds of believers worshiping and hearing the word preached is also a part of fellowship. That's one of those questions that breaks my heart. But it's also one of those questions that is the reason why we left this so that people could post a question anonymously. I don't know who wrote the question, and I also don't know the parents that this is referring to. But I do want to take a moment, set some pieces up, and I want to share some statistics. It might not seem relevant. Give me a moment to set this up. 85% of people who enter relationship with Christ would do so between the ages of 4 and 14. 85%. It is referred to by researchers as the 4-14 window. Only 6 to 8% will enter relationship with Christ between the ages of 15 to 18. That means 94% of those who ever place faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior will do so by the age of 18. Research from Barna indicates that by the age of 9, most children have their spiritual moorings already in place. By the age of 13, their spiritual profile as an adult is almost complete. Here's my concern for families. During the ages of 4 to 18, many families have filled their lives with any and everything other than a passionate pursuit 
of God. Spiritual development within the family is kind of like number eight out of seven on a list of importance. Doesn't even make the list. When that age bracket is so important, it is crucial for the parents to be engaged and to lead the way, to set the example. You all have heard me say it before. It's been mentioned by others within this church. Parents are the primary disciplers of their kids. The church is not the primary discipler. The youth group is not the primary discipler. Student camp in the summer, great, not the primary discipler. The parents are the primary disciplers of their kids. I shared this statistic with you before. When George Barna surveyed teenagers who have left the church after they graduated from high school, the number one reason they gave for leaving is God has never been real to my parents. Their statement was not, my parents did not believe in God. The issue was they grew up in homes where parents said they believed in God, but that belief did not change their actions or the way that they lived. They claimed God was important, but they lived as though God did not exist. It didn't impact their schedule. It didn't impact their finances. It didn't impact their attitudes, how they treated people, what they said, or what they did. And after 18 to 20 years of children growing up in that environment, it made an impression. God may be real, but he is not real to my parents. Therefore, he is not real to me. Parents, please hear me. Your children are following your example. And what parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. When parents moderately attend, their children often choose not to attend. When parents moderately study the Word of God, the children do not see the Word of God as important for them to study. So there's four quick pieces I would like to share with parents or with believers in general who hold the same position where two or more are gathered, God is there, I do not need to attend and be a part of a church in order to be a part of God's family. I, I want to share this. And please know what I'm about to say is not directed towards those who are needing to stay home because they are sick. They are away from the church for a period of time because that's where their job took them. I'm not addressing this towards those who serve in the military and they are not able to be within a physical worship service every Sunday, and I'm also not addressing this to people who are needing to care for a family member or a friend who is sick. I, that, that's not who I'm talking. I'm addressing this to those able-bodied people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they just choose not to attempt. First thing I would say is part of your spiritual development in Christ only happens in community with other believers. By not being involved, by refusing to serve, by holding back the spiritual gifts that God has placed in you that are for the edification of the body, listen closely, it is going to weaken your walk with God and it's hurting the body of Christ that you claim to be a part of. 
God gave those gifts, those talents, those abilities to you to be worked out for the edification of believers within the body. Second, watching services online does not allow you to know people and to be known by others. Believers need to know and they need to be known. When you are active within biblical community and you are missing for a Sunday or two, people notice. When you're sick, people notice. When somebody dies in your family, you you can share it with someone because they know you. They know what's going on. When somebody is watching online, yes, they might hear the message, but listen, if no one knows you, they don't know when you're hurting. They don't know when you're in trouble. They don't know when you're spiritually drained. They don't know when to step in because you're not a part of the body in that sense. It's important that we are to know others and we're to be known. And I'm trying to say this as calmly as I can say it. If you choose not to be a part of the body, please do not get upset with other Christians when they don't know when you're hurting. You need to be a part of the body. Here's a third thing I would say. Scripture tells us to gather. That's an obedience issue. Hebrews 10.25, let us not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. We find in Acts chapter 2, it provides clear instruction about the importance of biblical community and coming together and sharing together. Multiple New Testament epistles, they describe the importance of the spiritual gifts that have been given to each believer are to be exercised within the body of Christ. There's a necessity, there's an ongoing spiritual teaching within the New Testament of the importance of being together. Christianity is a team sport. It is to be lived in biblical community. If you watch National Geographic, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, any of those, you will recognize the analogy. The animals that get picked off out of the herd are the ones that are weak, the ones that are sick, and the ones on the fringe. Okay, we need to stick together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. And there's a part of that that only happens when you're in fellowship with other believers. The fourth thing I would say is, yes, God is with two or more who are gathered. But I would not quote that passage to make the argument for staying home from church. The reason is because that passage is given in the context of spiritual discipline in Matthew 18. For believers who were sinning and refused to repent and get right with the Lord... That text is, if you read the preceding verses, when you have gone to that believer who is walking in sin, you've gone one-on-one, and they did not hear and repent. You went back with two or more witnesses. They did not hear and repent. You have brought them before the church, and they have not repented. The church is to take the next step, and that is they are to disfellowship, treat the person as though they are an unbeliever, to allow the Spirit of God to do the work. And what the text is saying, when two or more are gathered together declaring this person has rejected the will of God, God is with them and they are obeying the will of God. 
That is not the passage you want to quote for staying home from church. When I say context is key, context is key. So back to the young person who asked the question. I would encourage you on three levels. Be prayerful, be respectful, be faithful. Pray specifically for your parents. Pray that they would see the need for biblical community. Pray that God would surround them with believers who would encourage them that they need to be a part of Christian community. Be faithful in your prayers. Also, be respectful. It's not a point to argue. Be respectful. Invite them to come with you. Be respectful. As you're going to church, ask if there's something that you could pray for them about. Be respectful. God can do a lot through a teenager who is respecting their parents' authority in order to grab the heart of that parent. The next thing I would say is be faithful. Continue to pursue the Lord. Continue to be in the Word. Continue to be in prayer. Continue to faithfully pray for your parents. So that's what we have time for tonight. By the way, it is 7.59. My goal is to be done by 7. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We, there's, there's a lot that we could go through, and I understand. The questions that are presented, they're important questions. And sometimes there's just not a format, there's not a form, an opportunity for people to ask those questions. So thank you. For those who have submitted questions, and just know I still have about 25 to 27 in the original ones. So whenever we get through the original list, we will open it back up for other questions to come in. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, okay. Well, we can do that too. <laughs> All right. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for those who are gathered here this evening. And God, we pray that you would draw us close to you in intimate relationship. We'll be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.